You're listening to Wake Up Call with Christina Previtt. I'm the CEO and co-owner of New Jersey Divorce Solutions, a law firm located in Edison, New Jersey. I've been practicing exclusively divorce and family law for the past 16 years. Everyone has a story. I interview them. Wake Up Call is an opportunity for you to hear inspiring stories from people who are making hard decisions, overcoming their fears, and living their most authentic life. Everybody, you are watching or listening to a special edition of the Wake Up Call podcast. I'm Christina Previtt, your host, and joining me today for a special episode of the hashtag FemSquire series is Christine Mayer, an attorney in Cincinnati, Ohio, who specializes in litigation and has a special passion for advocating for veterans. And we're going to talk more about that. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me, Christina. I'm happy to be here. I'm excited to talk about not just your career trajectory, but also your interesting background before college. Sure. Because you grew up as, I don't want to call you a military brat, but it sounds like, okay, (laughs) a term of endearment. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Navy brat. Um, My dad was a supply corps officer in the Navy. And so I was born in the Hampton Roads area of Virginia, a lot of military operations around there, and then moved to the West Coast um, when I was too young to appreciate the beauty of Monterey, California at like two years old. I don't even remember it, honestly. I, we lived there for a couple of years, and then I actually moved to South Jersey for four years. My dad was stationed in Philadelphia, and so we lived right across the bridge in South Jersey for four years. And then right before I got into third grade, I guess, I, we moved back to the Hampton Roads area and uh, my dad ended up having three different jobs there. So we had a long, much longer stretch than most military families did. So we were there for about seven years straight. And then after my freshman year of high school, I had to move, uh, which was really hard <laughs> because we were moving to central Pennsylvania, which, you know, why would we move there, a landlocked area with the Navy, but there's a supply depot in that area right outside of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, that was purposely strategically built to be away from the water during World War II because it's on the um, railroad lines from Philadelphia to D.C. So I finished high school there and then uh, went off to D.C. for college. So you moved around a lot, but that was a way of life for you. Yeah. Yeah, it really was. And, you know, I think it made me more adaptable to different things that I've had to go through in my life that we all have to go through. But, you know, for me, for example, going to college wasn't, it wasn't that big of a thing for me because I was like, oh, it's just another move. I got to just start all over again, make new friends and figure out, you know, I would always just kind of find my little niche with whatever I was interested in, all my music stuff, like grew up playing piano and singing in the choir. So anytime we moved, you know, I just find a new choir. My parents were big in the church. So we'd always find a new church and find some friends that way. And college was, you know, kind of the same thing. And then, you know, moving to DC after college, working on Capitol Hill, and then eventually going to law school, just all sort of very similar with just realizing I gotta, you know, start back over again. And the good thing about it, I think, is that it forced me to sort of re, you know, re-identify re- behind my identity every time that I moved to a different place. And it was kind of an opportunity to just sort of review. And I actually would change 
up until, let's see, I'm trying to remember when I (laughs) I stuck with it. But when I was younger and I wasn't really, you know, conscious of any of this kind of stuff, I, I would change what I wanted people to call me whenever we moved. So I would flip between Christine, which is my full given name and Chrissy, which is my nickname that my family always called me. Uh, And so I would switch what I wanted most other people to call me outside my family. So I think, I think I went with Chrissy. um, Let's see, after my move during high school, when I changed high schools, I switched back to Chrissy and then you know, college and law school friends, I just kind of kept that. But professionally, I've, I've maintained Christine, just because I think it sounds more professional, less childish, I guess. But well, that's stressful, though, to move. My family moved a lot, too. And I absolutely hated it. Yeah, especially I think when I was a teenager, it was hard because that was the hardest for me. Absolutely. I mean, my dad had to like pry me off the front porch that day that we moved in between my freshman and sophomore years of high school because I'd been with the same people for, you know, years and I had all these friends and I was doing like the dance team and the soccer team and the choir, the show choir at school. And I just kind of had a really great social life in high school, great group of friends. And was involved in all the things that I cared about. And I was like, not happy about having to start all over with all of that stuff. Did you ever feel a little resentful? Like why can't you just settle in one spot? Yeah. Oh yeah. Especially because then after that last move in Pennsylvania, my younger brother's five years younger than me. And they, my parents stayed there. Like even after my dad retired from the Navy, they stayed there to let my brother finish high school. And I was like, oh, must be nice to to be like the baby, the family who gets to do fifth grade through senior year, all in the same place. Weren't there other kids though, who were military brats too? Yeah, actually the the time that same move, you know, into central PA was the only time we actually ever lived on base. And so there happened to be also another girl who was my same grade, who was moving in with her parents onto the base as well. And so we became friends. It was nice to actually meet somebody and make a friend or two in the summertime. And there was like uh, another girl around the corner who was a year younger than me. So the three of us just kind of became friends very quickly. And, you know, it was good to have that support because they understood what, you know, what I was going through with that change. Well, one thing I feel like I missed out on not being in the same place for very long was I didn't, I I feel like I don't have a lot of friends that I grew up with. Like my boyfriend has friends that he's known since they were in diapers. I don't, my husband's the same way. (laughs) Yeah. I don't, I don't really have that either. The moves though, sort of taught me that you figure out kind of who your friends, your true friends really are. And a lot of that was hard, you know, that was hard, especially when I got older and I wanted to keep in touch with people. And I just realized that they didn't, you know, they didn't care that much about keeping in touch with me. I was like, okay, I guess, guess that person wasn't really my friend, but I did maintain, you know, good friendships throughout. And now that I moved here, I was in the DC area for 15 years. um, And some of those people, some of the women I'm still friends with are my friends from college. Where do you consider yourself to be from? I usually say if people ask like the Virginia Beach area, because people, most people know that no matter where you live in the country, because I was born there. And then, you know, I spent so much time there and now, um, 
my parents have a condo on the beach there on the bay side on the Hampton Roads side and my older brother and his family live in Virginia Beach so I still go back there a lot and there's still good like close family friends around my parents keep in touch with that I will occasionally see when I live there uh, or sorry when I visit there and I just feel like if I had to you know say where was home that would that would be it. So what was your dad's career like? For people that, because I'm not a military brat, so that's a little foreign to me, but what was your dad's career? So my dad was an officer. Um, He had gone to college just like anybody else. And then he went to what they call officer candidate school. So it's a short program. I think it's a year or two. And then you become an officer and um, he was in this, the supply corps. So they're all about sort of the logistics of running the Navy the Monterey move is something very typical for officers because the Navy actually pays for them to go to grad school out there. So my older brother, who's also in the Navy, ended up doing that as well, which is a nice, it's like a nice place and you get to be in school. And so it's not, you know, long, stressful work hours, but you do certain number of years in a particular rank. And then as long as your work performance is good, you get promoted. And as you get higher up in seniority, it gets more and more selective as far as whether you get promoted. And if you don't get promoted, then they sort of look at where you are and how many, usually unless you've done something terrible, they let you finish out your 20 years and that gets you the, the military retirement, which is what a lot of people I think who go in are really, you know, working for, if they're thinking about it as a career, obviously there's, you know, the interest and desire in serving your country that some people start for, and maybe they just don't, something happens to them. They get injured like my husband did and they can't continue. So one of the jobs he had when we lived for that long stretch in Virginia beach was he was stationed on an aircraft carrier. And that was in sort of an interesting time because I was starting to become a teenager and he went and he was gone for six months. And that was when I was in, I think eighth grade. And so you know, a lot of changes and stuff going on when you're that age. And I remember him coming back and being like, wow, I mean, who are you? (laughs) You know, like you look like so grown up compared to when I left, even though it was only six months ago. And um, so that was hard. You know, my mom was basically like a single mom with three kids for long stretches of time. Um, So, but you know, it was really, I think it instilled in in us a really great example of, you know, sacrifice and service to the country. And at the time, as just a child in a military family, I didn't, I didn't appreciate that, but I've matured and understand and I'm able to look around and I see now too that, you know, such a small percentage of people now as compared to how many people were in service when we were in different wars many, many years ago. I think a lot of people don't quite understand what, you know, what military service is like if you don't know somebody or you don't have any real experience with it. Uh, But it is definitely not big sacrifice for both the service member and the, um, their families. I mean, for example, my brothers, they're both military or they're both Navy officers now. And like, we haven't all been able to see each other, uh, for gosh, I mean like six or more months. And we had all these plans to get together. My parents had their 40th wedding anniversary this year. And we were supposed to all get together down in Hampton and do a party for them. And, we just, we couldn't do it because of COVID. And even after they lifted some of the restrictions, I mean, they just, they're still not allowed to travel 
unless they're on, you know, official duties. My younger brother's stationed in Florida. So we haven't, (laughs) we just haven't been able to see him. It really is just a lifestyle though, because when somebody who has military family, it does seem like other family members join the military too. Yeah. It's a way of life. It's just something that you get used to. And and a lot of aspects of it can seem really foreign to other people. Mm -hmm. Did you ever have any aspirations of entering the military? No, I definitely took the view of when I was immature and still a little bit bitter about it. I was like, I'm not going to do to my family what my dad did to me. I mean, that was really my attitude about it, to be honest with you. I know I, and I knew my brother, it's not, you're right. It's not, I, and it's not that I don't appreciate it. It's just not what I would choose for myself and my life and, and my family. You know, I appreciate that my brothers have done it and they kind of bugged me when I was in law school. They're like, when are you going to go jag? And I was like, Never, yeah. never gonna happen. Yeah, I remember when the JAG officers would be on campus. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it was an option, it was something to think sure. about. Yeah. I think I got scared away because I learned that you actually had to do boot camp, not for the yeah. full amount of time, right. but you still had to go. And I was yeah. like, I don't think that that's for me. Yeah. So, but you obviously you had aspirations to become a lawyer. So, when did that start? Did you always want to be a lawyer? No, no, there's no lawyers in my family. The closest is like, I don't know, my mom's first cousin or something. But uh, no, I was just, um, I was arguing with my mom as a teenager. And she just all of a sudden out of exasperation said, you know, you really seem like you like to argue. Maybe you should think about being a lawyer. And I was like, yeah. Maybe I should. How old were you? I mean, was, I was that 16. actually something you seriously thought about yeah. at age? Yeah. No. Yeah. So I was 16 and I was in um, my second high school that had kind of, it was much bigger than my first high school, like 600 more kids. Uh, it was like a small college, like 2,500 kids in this high school. And so they had a lot more extracurricular opportunities than my first high school did. And one of them was this mock trial team. And you know, with all my like singing and dancing and piano playing and stuff, I was used to being on stage and sort of performing in front of people. So I started this mock trial team and figured out we're basically going to put on a different kind of play and we're going to have different costumes on, but we're going to be saying lines and acting things out in a courtroom. And we got to compete against other high schools and actually be in the courthouses with real judges sitting up on the bench. So it was really, really fun. I, I loved it. I had a great time with it. We did really well in high school. And then I just continue that into college. And I got a minor in this arts program at the University of Maryland, which was really fun. So I was able to keep my art stuff, the the piano and the singing and the dancing on the side. And part of what, you know, I was still pursuing in college just to keep a good balance. But then I was, you know, focused on the major of uh, political science and trying to prepare myself for law school. It's really amazing how many litigators have an art background. I know. (laughs) It's not something that I ever was aware of until I started doing this podcast and started interviewing femme squires like you, that a lot of women were into dance and performing arts. So I've actually started referring to litigation as a performing art. I think that's accurate. You know, you still are going there and you are saying things 
because that's what you need to say at the time. And there are maybe sometimes you don't always 100% believe them yourself personally, but you do what you have to do for your clients, of course, within the ethical bounds. And I will tell you before I moved here, I sort of grew up in this legal community in Fairfax, Virginia, outside of DC. And um, that that legal community was very supportive of my law school, um, George Mason there. And they, uh, you know, I did a, I did an internship with a judge there while I was in law school and they ended up as a law clerk. And so I got to know a lot of the judges. There were 15 judges on the bench there. And I would actually dress differently depending on who I was appearing in front of, because some of the judges definitely had a bias against younger female attorneys, didn't take us very seriously. And so I would sort of uglify myself a little bit, if you will. I would pull my hair back and I would wear my glasses and just try to be, you know, as buttoned up and conservative as I could. And I was never going to show up in a pantsuit in that courthouse. I will tell you that much because it was still, even though it's right outside DC and it's a very overall liberal area, it's still that courthouse and that legal community is still sort of an old boys club. And so I was like, well, I'm not going to let someone be distracted by what I'm wearing in the courtroom. I want them to focus on what I'm saying. And so while I might think it's ridiculous that I have to think about that as a woman, when men just you know show up in their suit and tie and no one really cares what they're wearing for the most part, I just, I don't want the distraction. I'd rather the focus be on my arguments. And I had this, I clerked for this really awesome female judge there. And she was a real trailblazer for women in that legal community. She started out actually as a law clerk in the same court. And then she was one of the first, I'm trying to remember what she told me. I think she was the first unmarried female prosecutor in that community. And she would tell me these stories of things that were said to her and what she had to go through. I mean, you should really interview her because she's got great stories about her experiences and she tells them in a really funny way, but I'm sure it was difficult on her to go through that and not be taken seriously just because she was a female and happened to be very attractive. Those things really still go on. They're just more covert. Yeah. It is. I've thought about that, you know, that we, you know, we now try so hard for equality and we have a lot of men who support that, but there is still, I think, some underlying discounting, especially of younger female attorneys in the courtroom. And, and, and I do sometimes wonder what, would it be easier for me to deal with if it was more overt, like the things that my judge dealt with, because there would be comments made directly to her. And I don't know, it's, it's hard, hard to say uh, what, what would be easier. I do think it still exists and it's almost just harder to detect, but you always have that thought in your mind of, um, am I being treated differently because I'm a woman? I've just flat out asked male attorneys before, you know, are you, do you not like me because you resent having to deal with a woman? And it was older men yeah Mm -hmm. i would have to say this too and i and they would deny it but i did feel like there was some sort of resentment that you know why do i have to deal with you yeah and i think i experienced that when i was younger 
but it, it was just amazing. I had that experience, but my male counterparts didn't. Right. Right. No. So. And it's interesting too, because I've had the experience of knowing when it was to my advantage and I used that knowledge. For example, this one particular judge I knew was a fan of certain types of women's heels. And so when I had to argue in front of him, I picked a pair of shoes that I probably wouldn't normally wear to the courtroom. They're like mostly black with hot pink flowers on them. And they're like nice, like three and a half inch heels. And uh, I positioned myself in the courtroom while I was waiting for my turn on the docket to make sure he was able to see the shoes. And then I went up there and I had to actually ask for my attorney's fees, which is not what I usually end up doing in regular, you know, civil litigation. I know the family law world that happens a lot of times, but he even said to me during the argument, well, you know, I don't usually uh, grant attorney's fees. So, well, I am aware of that, your honor, but as a former law clerk of this court, I have so much respect for you and for all the other members of this bench. I would never, uh, inaccurately state your prior ruling and the court speaks through its orders. You entered an order saying I would get my attorney's fees. And so I don't see any reason why you shouldn't follow your previous order and award my fees. And I got them. <laughs> so and I, it very well may have been the shoes. You never know, right? <laughs> that's part of the performance aspect of things. Exactly. Right? That's what we do as advocates. That's right. what you do as an advocate. And when you're litigating, you know your audience, you speak yep. to them, you know what will persuade them to see things the way that you want them to. And that's really where the advocacy comes in. Absolutely. And I hate to see. I also, because I know that this sort of discounting exists, I hate to see other female attorneys embarrass themselves in court. I mean, especially younger ones than me. I actually had a serious talk with one woman after court one day because we were in there on a discovery dispute and she literally stood there and told the judge that she just hadn't had time to look at it. I was like, oh, uh, you can't really show up to court and say that. <laughs> Well, you really can't show up to court unprepared. Sounds like is what she did. Yeah, exactly. And I was so, what did you say to her? We had to go back in this witness room and scratch up the order. And I said to her, I just can't believe how unprofessional you were in there. I said, I have to write this order now. And this order is all about you and what you're required to do before a week from today. It's not even about your client. And Did she get angry? Yeah, she got really pissed at me. I was like, you will never call me unprofessional. And I said, well, don't act that way. You're embarrassing all of us. Did you intend it to be constructive criticism? Yeah. I, I mean, I was so mad, though. I will tell you, I'll admit, I didn't understand why I was so angry. But it was because I felt like she was just perpetuating the stereotype about younger female attorneys that we don't know what we're doing and that we come to court unprepared. And yeah. we just, I don't know, we think we're entitled or something. No, you're right. Uh, you're <laughs> right. We, we do have to be mindful of that, unfortunately, even still today in 2020. Do you feel like sometimes there's a, a strange um, tension or competition between women that exists? It's, it's funny. Something that my husband said to me years ago, and I just, 
first time he said it, I just kind of dismissed it because I thought it was silly. But he said, do you realize that if women spent more time supporting each other as opposed to stabbing each other in the back, you all would probably run this country without a question. And I was like, ah, that's silly. And then, you know, as I had more experiences with other women in professional arenas, I really started to believe that's probably true. And so I'm trying really hard. I'm sort of unofficially leading the women's group at my firm now. And I really want that to be kind of the theme. Like how do we as female attorneys support one another and try to do whatever we can to squash any kind of, you know, backstabbing or speaking unkindly about each other. It's just not, it's not productive. And you have disagreements with someone, you should just be able to be willing to have a conversation in person or over the phone. If you're not, you know, you're not able to be in person, just clear the air and, and move on. Do you think some of this though, is because it's harder to some degree for women to, to get ahead and be recognized. Do you think that could be where some of the competition comes from? Yeah. And I do think that there is a mindset again, among some women who are in the older generation, more, you know, sort of senior partner level who felt like, especially the ones who also had kids that, well, it was really hard for me and I still made it. So what are you complaining about when you're trying to get extra weeks of maternity leave or, um, you know, we have a great mother's room for nursing moms now. And it's funny when I was doing, and I actually caught a couple of these older women having like a private conversation in there when I was trying to go in there to pump. And they were like, we're really sorry, but we knew this is the only place as women we could have a private talk. I love that. That is so funny. <laughs> but I'm sure they were thinking to themselves. And by the way, when we were, when we were nursing moms and we were back to work, we didn't have the luxury of this nice room that you had. Yeah, that's so true. <laughs> I've always said that women supporting women can be such a fierce force to be reckoned with, but then yes. at the same time, it can go in the other direction. You know, we can be so fiercely oppositional and mm-hmm. harmful to each other too when yeah when we're not being helpful and supportive so I really love that you have that um mindset and you're geared towards that and I think we just set the tone for the other women right I mean yeah absolutely. you're not participating in that and right. women get the idea that you know this lady wants she wants to help me she wants yeah. to support me I, there's um, no need for me to be competitive or spiteful with her Yeah. And I think that my judge, who's the woman I worked for right out of law school, just set such a great example for that. It was just great to to have that. That was really my first experience too, I think with a, you know, with a female boss. Uh, I'd worked on Capitol Hill um, in between college and law school, but always was mostly just reporting to to men. So that was a great first experience. Yeah. I mean, it was incredible. It really was. Um, okay. So we've kind of bounced around a little bit. Usually my first question is where did you go to college and what did you want it to be when you grow up? So (laughs) why don't we go there? Sure. Sure. Yeah. So I went to university of Maryland right there outside of DC and yeah, by the time I got there, I knew, you know, I knew that I was going to go into law and I did end up taking a little bit over a year to work on Capitol Hill, but that was, that was probably one of the best things I could have done for myself because I got 
real world work experience. I worked long hours for not much money, but I got to be a part of helping military service members get the, you know, the healthcare, the support for their families, the, well, we were in wars at the time. So making sure that they had the supplies that they, and equipment that they needed to be protected in the, in the conflicts. And it also just taught me about normal social things with networking, just being able to introduce yourself like an adult, introduce other people who don't know the people you're talking to, remember people's names, pass out business cards, that sort of thing. I mean, cap- working on Capitol Hill is just, it's a big schmooze fest all the time. <laughs> you know, you're just, even if you're just a staffer and you're not a, a member of Congress or a senator, it's everyone kind of operates like that. But there's a lot of really young people that work there and really ambitious people. So you kind of get, I don't know, you get sucked into that vibe. And it was, it was great. And it gave me a different perspective when I was in law school, because I knew something other than school. Yeah, I tell a big difference between the people who would come straight from law or straight from undergrad to law school. And especially when it came to getting jobs, because we're in law school during the crash. Um, I graduated in 2010. And our abilities to uh, our abilities among members of my class and especially the class behind us to get jobs was so much more difficult and challenging than for people who had been in the few years before us. And certainly some people who have come, come after us, you know, so I use my contacts and I did find some people to be a little resentful of that. And I just wanted to say to them, this is life. Well, you had a certain level of emotional maturity, I would guess, because yeah. of your military upbringing mm-hmm. and moving. You know, you yeah. were forced to to deal with grown up things, to deal with change. Yeah. And to have to deal with different kinds of people because you were moving to different parts of the country. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. I mean, even in just different living in, you know, central Pennsylvania as compared to southeastern Virginia it was very very different. And then, you know, I've experienced that here. This is the Midwest and the attitudes of people are are definitely very different from what I was used to um, growing up, you know, up and down the East coast. Well, I think a lot of people, wherever they grow up, especially if they've been somewhat insulated and not had exposure to other people in in the world or in the country, they just kind of think that everybody's the way they are. Yes, I 100% agree with that. And that is sort of the disadvantage of growing up in the same place and not really going anywhere different for college or just getting a job and continuing to live and work in the same place. So do you appreciate now as an adult being more stable in one spot or do you ever feel that itch like maybe we should move and go? (laughs) I would say that I got... I had the itch to move out of DC when I, right at the time when I met my husband and he was very clear pretty early on that he wanted to move back here. And so if I wasn't open to that, then we probably weren't going to continue seeing each other. And I said, well, take me there. I've never been to Cincinnati. I don't know much about it. So he brought me here and it was like New Year's going into 2017, I think. And 
showed me around. We went out downtown a little bit and I was like, well, this is just kind of a smaller, less expensive, less stressful version of DC and the people are more friendly. So why not? Sounds great. Yeah. So <laughs> wrong with that. Yeah. It took a while to, you know, get the job and get admitted to the Ohio bar and everything, but I eventually got here and I'm really glad that that we did make the move. I feel like I do fit here and it's a good place to raise kids. And I don't, I don't see ourselves moving. So tell me about your law school experience. Did you love it or hate it? Uh, (laughs) I don't think there's a lot in between people either love it or hate it. I, Oh gosh. If I had to pick like love it or hate it. I mean, mostly hated it, I think, (laughs) but I do have this like nerdy fascination for certain aspects of the law. And so I really did like being able to pursue those. And I ended up being really good at the moot court thing. So not surprising, I became a litigator. And so I was, I loved that competition aspect because again, it was a, it was a performance outlet, you know, we would we would go and do these competitions. We'd compete against the other schools and you go and get up there and give your argument a couple of different times and get the questions fired at you. And it was, it was fun. I I did really enjoy that aspect of it, but the rest of it, you know how it is like the, the drama with the other students, with people like hiding books in the library and all this just (laughs) stupid cutthroat stuff, competition stuff. I didn't love that. And Where did you go to school? To um, Scalia Law School, which is George Mason. It's uh, in right there in Arlington, Virginia, outside of D.C. And did you know what you kind of lawyer you wanted to be? What area of law you wanted to practice? Yeah, because of my experience with mock trial and, and the fact that I knew that was kind of taking the place for the performance need that I had that I was not going to pursue for my career. I was pretty sure I was going to do litigation, but you know, I'd worked on Capitol Hill and I really enjoyed that work, but I knew that I could not get to the professional staff level of the committee that I worked on without a graduate degree of some sort. So I had come in that to that job thinking law school, and I think I'd already taken the LSAT, but I was just taking a year to do the job and make sure that's what I wanted to do. And I, I did ultimately decide that, but I went back to work there both of my summers during law school and my second summer, they really showed me what it would be like to be a lawyer on the staff of the house armed services committee. And I enjoyed it, but I had also had the experience of clerk uh, interning for the judge. And I just, I had that courtroom itch, the courtroom bug. And I ultimately, you know, ended up setting myself up for the clerkship so I could continue to pursue litigation instead of being a lawyer in Congress. (laughs) Yeah, definitely a different path. Yeah. So you graduate, you did your clerkship. And then what was your first real job after that? So I actually did two clerkships. I wanted to do appellate work. And so I did an appellate clerkship after my first year on the trial level. And then I got recruited out of that clerkship into a, actually by a woman I met in like an Italian American women's group uh, who was a lawyer in town. And she recruited me to her firm, which was a legation boutique. And 
a lot of the work was insurance defense work, meaning that insurance companies would hire us, you know, to defend their clients and they would, you know, mostly pay the bills, but that made it a real serious volume business. And so the partners would give the associates a lot of experience that I would never have gotten had I gone to a big law firm first. And it was really stressful because I had to, again, work long hours and not get paid much even as a lawyer in DC. But I was, let's see, my first year there. So I'm I'm a couple years out of law school, but it's my first firm job. Within a month of being at that firm, I got to argue my first motion to dismiss in court. And it was a great opportunity because we weren't trying to dismiss the whole case. So it wasn't this we sort of make it or break it situation with a lot of pressure, but I was still nervous. And I, you know, the partner came with me and he was like, oh, I thought you did a great job. You answered the questions from the judge, just like I would have. And I don't, you know, I'm not sure what, I don't remember exactly the result. I think I won on a couple of things and maybe lost on another, but I was still excited to have had that experience. And then I started working for a partner who did a lot of employment litigation and we got this big case and that took up, you know, a lot of that work took up the rest of, you know, the, the first year of my career there. And I argued every single motion from an initial motion to dismiss all the way through discovery stuff and summary judgment. And you don't win summary judgment in state court in Virginia. We all know this, but we try anyway. And uh, so I argued the week before the jury trial, I argued five motions in limine and I took some serious jury issues away from the other side. And then they ultimately the Friday before the Monday of trial, they came down to a really low settlement number and we, you know, had to take it. But had that not occurred, I would have been second chair of a jury trial in the first year of my practice. And that's big. Yeah, it was huge. And that firm, you know, as much as I griped about the hours and the pay, I, again, I got incredible opportunities and I brought, when I did eventually move to a bigger law firm, I brought with me experience with things in the courtroom and client experiences and just, I think a really, a more matured set of skills than even some of the junior partners, I think, at this law firm, because I was able to lay out a list of like, here's everything that I've done in cases. And I remember someone saying something like, well, you have almost more courtroom experience than I do. If you work at a large firm, you could be waiting years to get any any courtroom exposure at all. Yeah, so That was valuable experience that you had I remember there are times when somebody might see an older attorney, you know, I'm going to put that in right, order. right. <laughs> older. And they just automatically assume that because that person's older, you know, because they have a few gray hairs that they have all this trial experience, which right. really isn't necessarily true. Yep. So there could be somebody much younger, you know, someone like you, who, because of the experiences you've had is probably more adept at having a trial. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. So how long were you there? So I was there for three years. And then um, I just was starting to get a little burned out of the, the long hours and the low pay, especially just living in an expensive place like DC. You know, you can only survive on 
that kind of money when you're also working all the time <laughs> for so long. And so um, I was working with a recruiter and a, a listing came out for a large national firm that was actually specifically seeking someone with my um, state court experience in Virginia. They referred to it as like the twilight zone in the interviews because that, the way that the procedures are done in, in the state courts in Virginia are a little bit, uh, I would say just kind of foreign to someone who's not used to it. There's a lot of old Latin words that still get used. And once you learn it, it, it just, you don't even think about it as being strange. But I guess when you talk to somebody about something called a demur, they're like, what, what you know, what's that? I've never heard that word. <laughs> I remember it from law school. Yeah. yeah. But I've never really had to use it in practice, <laughs> but I do divorce law. So. I don't right. Know. Right. What about the veterans work that you really love? When did that really become something in your yeah. So when I was at the bigger law firm, I, like I said, I really wanted to do appellate work and I wasn't finding any opportunities to do it there. And so uh, they were also really big and supportive of pro bono work. And that wasn't something I'd had a ton of time for at my first firm either. So I, I think someone asked me if I was interested in it and it was a training that was being offered by uh, this organization called the Veterans Consortium in DC. They train lawyers on veterans law, and then they hand you a case that's already appealed all the way up to what's called the Court of Appeals of Veterans Claims. You can get yourself admitted for kind of a one-time practice experience, and you get a case. And so I got this case, and it was helping an older man in Florida who was also actually a Navy veteran, and he needed some help with the hearing loss claim. And in the grand scheme of veterans law, as I know it now, this is very minor, discreet issue to some people, but this man was older. He was on a fixed income and he had been struggling with his hearing for many, many years. And the VA had decided that he was really only at the compensable level of hearing loss as of, you know, six or something years after he started pursuing this claim. And so I worked out, I worked on the appeal brief and I filed that. And then the secretary of the VA's attorney came to me and said, you know, you make some good points. Let's agree to remand the case back down. I was like, Oh, great. This is awesome. You know, I got a, got a successful result for this guy and they're going to send it back down. They're going to fix it. Well, I didn't find out until after I agreed to that, that you have to be a VA accredited attorney if you want to help someone out on the VA's levels of their process and the appeals, the internal appeals process there. So I said, okay, well, I, I'm just going to figure out what I have to do to get accredited as a VA attorney and I'm going to do it and I'm going to keep helping this guy. And I did. I couldn't even tell you what I had to do because it wasn't that significant. I think I filled out some paperwork, paid a fee and went through some more training, which was great. And two years later, after I took on this man's case, he's suffering with a blown off roof from one of the hurricanes in Florida. He had had a FEMA roof because he could not afford to replace his own roof. And then he finally went ahead and did it and told me, if I don't get any more money from the VA, I'm going to be paying for this roof for the rest of my life. And from talking to him, I knew that he was kind of alone. It didn't sound like he had a lot of family support. And so I said, well, Mr. Randall, I'm just going to keep, keep 
harassing the VA until they get you some of the money that you deserve. And sure enough, after two years, he got paid back for five or six years worth of benefits that he should have gotten. And so he was able to get that debt off of his back and not feel like he was paying for a roof for the rest of his life. It sounds like such a small thing, but it's really not. I actually finished that case right after we moved here a few years ago. And then um, a couple of uh, colleagues of mine at Graydon said, you know, reached out to me and said, Hey, you do this veterans law stuff, right? I've got somebody who needs your help. And so I picked up a couple of clients that way. And then I just kind of started, started learning more and doing more for try to get the expertise because it really is like another area of the law and another set of procedures that you have to learn to deal with how it works internally at the VA before you can get up to the court level. And I just kept getting referrals from different places. And then I worked myself up to the point where I felt like I don't, I had too many clients to continue to try to do it on my own. And so I've started to build a team and I'm hoping to, you know, be able to start taking on more clients here. We're actually going to have a Veterans Day event at a veteran owned brewery that just opened here in Cincinnati. So we're going to do just a client appreciation event with, you know, it used to be a parking garage. This is huge, huge space. People can be spread out and, you know, hopefully feel comfortable. Um, And it's, it's just been such a fulfilling practice because the clients are so appreciative of the work. Because you're actually making a really huge impact on their daily lives. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of my clients are people who are in pretty tough uh, physical pain. They're also then affected by that mentally. And some of them are in really tough financial positions right now too, because some people have such horrible experiences as a result of things that happen to them while they're in service that that has a significant impact on their ability to have a career and to save for retirement. Uh, you know, I've got a client who's a Vietnam War veteran and he's in his 70s and this poor man just lives, you know, month to month, paycheck to paycheck on what he can do because he's just he's just physically in, in such bad shape and his problems started very early on after he got out of the service and he went into the service at 18 years old. So he's just never been able to build up, you know, financial stability for himself. And I wish I'd, you know, been able to help him when he was younger, but I know he greatly appreciates what I'm, what I'm trying to do for him now. How much of your practice now is catering to veterans? I would say at this point, it's about 50%. Uh, I still do a lot of commercial litigation for businesses. Some of that is focused on, on benefits as well. So it fits together, but I'm usually on the defense side. You know, I'm, I'm defending the business against claims and here I'm representing people and it's the government, you know, it's not, <laughs> it's really... People say it's not adversarial, but it is because unfortunately the the VA on the initial levels when people make their claims, a lot of times it seems as though they're trying to deny the claims and they really need legal assistance once that happens to be able to fight and appeal and get what they deserve. 
That was actually my next question is, is this something that some people might be tempted to just do themselves? Yes. And it's, and it's funny you ask that because the VA really tries to advertise it that way. And they do try to make, um, make it seem like it's a system that veterans could navigate themselves. But I honestly think that's crazy. Now that I'm in it, I just can't imagine that most veterans would be able to do that well themselves without some help. So especially if you get the denial and then you want to appeal and and try to argue for a change in the decision, it's not it's not really easy to do without some assistance. So if there are people that think, well, I'll just try it myself and it doesn't go the way I want it to, well, then I'll get Christine to appeal it. Is that a good strategy? Yeah, it is a good strategy. And it does actually kind of work for my practice because they, the VA prohibits us from charging veterans to help them submit new claims because they do feel like this is something the veterans should be able to do themselves. So we can charge like a pre-filing consultation fee, but most of my clients are in such bad financial position that they can't afford to lay out any money for anything. So when I help somebody with an appeal, that is when the VA will pay me out directly 20% out of what they get paid back. So they call it past due benefits. So they'll get a lump sum to account for all the time that the, the claim's been pending from the beginning. And then the VA will pay that directly to the attorney. So the veteran actually never has to pay the attorney out of pocket. So what are some typical matters that you work on? What kind of cases would I refer to you? And, and for people who are listening, if this is something that they need help with, what are the kinds of cases that you handle? Sure. So I, my primary focus is the disability benefits claims. So anybody who's got some sort of medical disability that they feel has been, you know, a result of something that happened to them in service, that's something that, you know, we can claim. And if it's denied, then we appeal, but that also then gets into once you get into, you know, certain levels of compensation and ratings for your disabilities as a veteran, then there are other benefits that you're entitled to. Also, sort of on the other side of that is even if a veteran doesn't feel like they have disabilities, but they're struggling to find employment, the VA has what they call a vocational rehab and education program. And and a couple of my more recent clients, I'm, I've been learning a little bit more about that program and how that works. And so I can help people get set up with that. And I've also helped one of my veterans who was struggling to get a VA medical facility to refer him out to a private doctor for a surgery that he really needed. And that was not something that was within the uh, expertise of the VA's doctors. And so I've navigated a little bit of the the VA health system and I've become, you know, an advocate for for a veteran for healthcare purposes as well. And also I, you know, just because I appreciate the sacrifice that veterans have made for our country, I want to help them with other aspects of legal issues that they may run into. For example, if they want to start a business. Um, you know, I have we have many people in my firm that I work with that help people with startups help people uh, just basic formation documents for businesses. And also if you've got a business and you want to become certified to be 
a disabled veteran owned small business, which is something that's helpful if you're trying to get into any area with government contracts. My firm has, we're, we're really a full service law firm. And so I just would like to focus on serving the veteran community. And if it's not something in the, you know, in the, the typical sort of VA work realm, then we are absolutely willing to do discounted hourly rates for hourly type work or work out, you know, flat fee arrangements and things like that, and try to give a discount on our, our normal rates for veterans. That's wonderful. I love that you do that. My perception has been that there's a lot of dissatisfaction out there by veterans not feeling like the commitment and the service that they've provided is really valued. Oftentimes when they come back Mm -hmm. from being at war, and in particular, if they've been suffering with post-traumatic stress. Absolutely. um, What is your perception of that? I, and I agree with your perception. Absolutely. There's not, I think because unlike how many, you know, what percentage of our population served in the military back in the times of World War II or even Vietnam, I think the, you know, the lack of appreciation really started with the Vietnam War veterans and has only just continued from there because now it is such a smaller percentage of our overall population that actually serves in the military, even if it's just a, a couple years of a, of a tour, but you're right. They, there isn't a lot of appreciation for it. And there's not, I don't think there's enough given back, you know, to say thank you for what they've done. And the PTSD point is, is certainly well taken. I think that there are a lot of mental health issues that arise out of uh, service, especially if there's, you know, combat situations involved and, there needs to be more done. And I know that there's a lot of focus right now on suicide prevention because the suicide rate among veterans is entirely too high. But I think more needs to be done to destigmatize mental health treatment for veterans. And I know that you can go to the VA, the local VA, and you can, you know, you can get treatment. If you, if you're a veteran, you can get yourself set up with, with healthcare there and you can, you can get treatment. They're doing a lot to try to get the suicide prevention hotline out there. There's a, you know, there's a veterans crisis line that anyone can call into. It's a 1-800 number. And I hope people will use that, but I would like to see less of a stigma attached with mental health treatment for veterans because they do see some terrible things and that would impact anyone, no matter what kind of mental health situation you had going on before you had that experience. And not everybody comes back to a really great supportive environment with family or friends. And so I think, I think some of the veterans feel like they're alone in in what they've been through. And I'm glad to see that, you know, there are good online communities. And my, I know my husband connects with a lot of people online and try to share and talk about their experiences so they can feel like there's, there's other people out there who've been through what they've been through. I agree with that a hundred percent. And I think even, even if you didn't see something terrible, but even if you weren't in combat, I, I have observed from people that I've been in contact with that sometimes just adjusting to life that's not a military life, you know, a civilian life, sometimes that can be difficult adjustment. Yeah, and I know that the military does a lot now uh, to help 
people who are transitioning out of service to really, they, they send them to classes and courses. And, and basically I would say it's, it's kind of like counseling sessions to help them deal with what they, they see as future issues with adjusting to life when they're not in the military. And you know, the ones who really do suffer from the mental issues of veterans, a lot of times you hear things like, well, I just, I don't know what my purpose is anymore because I'm not, I'm not in the military. I'm not serving my country. And so they struggle. Yes. Even if they have a family at home, you know, they, they kind of have this almost like a divided loyalty, you know, as to yeah. where they should be. Right. Um, yeah. It's, it's very interesting. And I certainly don't profess to, to truly understand that because I haven't been part of military life, but that is something that's been on my radar a little bit from friends that I have. So I really love what you're doing because my grandfather who is not with us any longer, but he was a World War II veteran. And yeah, mine too. Both of mine actually. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. We never really talked about it. I remember when we started hearing more in the news about post-traumatic stress and, and, milita- and military people. And his attitude was sort of, you know, I don't want to say just get over it, but because of the way that his generation was treated when they came back from war you know, I don't think anybody talked about post-traumatic stress it just wasn't a thing no and they just didn't talk about it you were just expected to come home and just settle into your life yeah your non-military yeah. life and I don't remember my grandfather being terribly sympathetic just because that was his experience so yeah. it is interesting the way that that has evolved and I really like what you said about trying to make more of an effort to destigmatize that. And what I've seen with some of my clients, the longer you go without getting treatment for whatever it is that's going on, the worse, the worse it's going to get. And the more it will impact a person's ability to then maintain jobs and be able to, you know, have relationships with people. And so it's just not not something that should be ignored or just, you know, not talked about. I think part of what they really appreciate about what I do for them is that I give them the individualized attention and listen to what's going on and what they need help with and do the best I can to help them that they don't, I don't think they necessarily get in a lot of other aspects of their lives. And the VA healthcare system definitely needs to improve. And so, you know, one of, I think one of the things that, like I mentioned, helping one of my clients get this surgery, I want to say that that made more of an impact on him than probably anything that I'm going to do with uh, the, the disability benefits work that I'm doing for him because he was treated so badly by individuals in the VA healthcare system for gosh, I think a year before I even got involved that he was, it was absolutely affecting him mentally. And he was just very angry about it. And I don't blame him. I mean, if I had been treated that way, I would have been angry too, especially when you're talking about your, your healthcare stuff, you know, I think people tend to be rightfully more sensitive about 
those issues. And so if you get treated poorly, when you're trying to deal with something like that, it's, it's going to have, you know, a significant impact on your daily mindset. And so while I can't say that I, you know, could point out to people's any specific signs or symptoms, my advice would be just, just try to listen and hear people out and really pay attention to what it is that's, that's bothering them. Um, because somebody may be suffering physically from a disability, but what may be really getting them down is, is sort of the mental aspect of that. And if you think about it, I, you know, I'm not trying to be stereotypical, but I think a lot of men who have been in the military would probably sort of wear the stereotype of being a tough guy. You, yeah. you know, being in the military, you have to be in good physical shape and you spend time working out and you're trying to build yourself up because you need the courage and the bravery to potentially go to battle and go to war. And so admitting that you have some sort of mental health issue is not, is, is really in conflict with that, I think. And that's, that again, still just kind of goes back to, I think what I hope is, is our, in our future, in our society of getting rid of that stigma for, for everyone. But I think especially Ben, uh, especially men who've gone through service to our country. Are you starting to see more women clients? I would like to, I I know for sure that some of my colleagues who are in this organization of veterans advocates do see some women clients come in. I haven't personally yet, but I'm really looking forward to, uh, working with them. And I know I spoke with a friend here who really wants to start an organization that I'm hoping I can help her with. There's a group out there where men in the community can donate suits and, um, you know, professional attire for veterans who are coming out of the service and they're doing job interviews. And there isn't a group like that for women. And so this friend of mine wants to get that started and I'm hoping I'll be able to work with her to sort of get that off the ground and hope to, you know, help her publicize it and things like that, because I'm sure there's plenty of us who feel like we have some nice work attire or, you know, suits and things that for whatever reason, we don't want to keep, but why not be able to give it to someone who is coming out of the service and needs to, you know, not wear a uniform anymore to go to a job interview. So I hope that that's something that we're going to get going in the next year. That's a great idea. You'll have to let me know. I can help you. I will. It. Great. Yeah. I love that. Anything to help veterans. So I know that you really love working with your veteran clients and you feel like you have a special affinity for them, but there was someone in particular that it was a particularly rewarding experience that you shared with me. And I'd love for you to share that. Yeah. now. Absolutely. It was really surprising and just completely unexpected. But a couple of weeks ago, I opened an envelope that came to my office and inside was a note from the mother of one of my veteran clients. And she said she just wanted to send me a note and a token of her appreciation of all the work that I had done for her son and that she understood from talking with him that I was a real advocate for other veterans in the area. And what she enclosed was what really struck me as just, oh gosh, so overwhelming and kind. She gave me her gold star mother's coin. 
And for those who don't know about gold star families, those are the families that lose uh, immediate family member uh, in the line of duty. And these coins are, you know, made especially for them and they're not widely available. You can't just go out and find one, you know, but I was just blown away that she gave me hers. And I knew from talking with my client that he had lost his younger brother uh, who was in the Marines and that really impacted him in, in, in the sense that he, you know, he was in the military himself as well at the time. And he just really wasn't able to continue on after that. He was just devastated by it. And so he ended up getting out and, um, you know, starting a career elsewhere. But I just, I was just so humbled and honored to receive something like that. And I, you know, I had to share that with the rest of the people in my firm who's been, who've been helping me work on these cases, because I don't think many of them realize the impact that we have, um, on the, on their lives and the lives of their family members. Because when you help somebody with some of these issues that makes a difference in their mindset and how they interact with their family members. And, you know, it really meant a lot to me that, that she felt so strongly about what I've done for her son, that she wanted me to have that. I really love that because it does demonstrate so well that what you're doing isn't really about money. It's It's not truly about the impact that you have on someone's life and just to make life a little bit better for them. Yeah. In whatever way that is. Exactly. I, I recognize that I can't, I can't change their past. I can't, solve their problems for them. But when I'm able to help them get benefits from the government that they deserve, that lessens their burdens and helps them have a better life. Well, I love the work that you're doing and I'm glad that you're doing it because I I don't know if there are a lot of people that have that specialization. Are there? There are quite a few out there, but I think we're all pretty spread out around the country. And I don't know that there are too many in our, you know, in this geographic region, but the beauty of this practice as well is that I can help people no matter where they live in the country. Um, I have a couple of clients who I've never met, you know, that live in, live in other States and, um, or just, you know, far enough away here, especially with COVID and everything. I haven't, you know, I haven't met a few of them in person, but I'm hoping maybe with this event that we're having in a couple of weeks on Veterans Day, I might get to meet them, but we do, you know, we do Zoom and stuff so they can, we can see each other face to face and try to connect that way. But yeah, really, I mean, I don't, it's not like other practices of law where you need to be licensed in a particular state. Uh, You just have to be accredited to practice before the VA and I can help anybody no matter where they are. I love the picture of you on your law firm's website. (laughs) You're in this room sitting at a piano and you had said that that was one of your conditions of moving. Yes, it was. (laughs) I really love that photo and I wanted to talk about why that's so important to you. Sure. Well, I, um, I started taking piano when I was eight years old. Um, my grandmother was a music teacher and my dad and all of his siblings were all required as kids to take piano first and then take up another instrument. And a lot of them also then got vocal lessons and 
Uh, I, you know, I started in the church choir when I was five, I was always going to be into, you know, singing and music things. And so, yeah, I started taking piano and I just, I really got into it kind of, I'm sure just got into that perfectionist tendency that was already there and <laughs> just kind of made it, made it more intense. But, you know, I, I always wanted to be able to just sing and play at the same time, but I got classically trained and, Gosh, when I was in middle school, I was so good that I had multiple complex pieces memorized at the same time. And my choir director in middle school, when we would have like a combined choir and band concert in the inner room where they were changing the stage out for whichever one to take over, she would close the curtains on the stage and roll a grand piano out and just let me sit there and like go crazy with whatever I was working on at the time. <laughs> just go out there, no music, just go nuts with all this crazy classical stuff. Um, but then, you know, I got into the singing more and I did get to the point where I was able to figure out how to, you know, sing and play at the same time. And is that hard? I don't play. Yes. And I certainly <laughs> yeah. don't sing. Nobody wants to hear that. But I didn't know that. That's hard yeah. to both. Yeah, it's really, it's challenging. I mean, I really have to get to the point where I start with the piano part. I learn that to the point where it's basically almost memorized. And then I just am looking at the music more for, to focus on the singing aspect. But you really have to get your brain to the point where you're not consciously thinking about the piano part while you're singing. So I just find things that, you know, fit my vocal range. And I, I get the music either. I buy, you know, a book of like, I've got Adele's 25 album, right? So you get this piano book that has music for all of her songs on that album. And then I just spend some time, you know, learning the piano part. And then most of the time I'm singing something I've already heard, you know, so I just kind of, I do it, but I work on it. You know, I, I took voice lessons starting when I was a sophomore in high school. And it's something I really enjoy and wish I had a little bit more time for, but it's nice to have it. I'm going to actually redo that room a little bit to make it more of a, like a Zen space for me. I just want it to be kind of my, my space. My husband's got this great man cave and I'm like, I need, I need she shed. a she shed, <laughs> like a little she, internal she shed in the house. Oh, you're kind of like <laughs> Lady Gaga is what you're saying. <laughs> I have a similar vocal range to Lady Gaga, yes. <laughs> wow, I feel like I need to have you come on another time and sing and play. We could do that. Oh my God, I would do that. So uh, yeah, I would love that. I have okay, the fun. absolute worst singing voice ever. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just in awe of anybody that really can sing. So you're probably not the right person for me to go to karaoke with. No, you would hate me at karaoke. <laughs> like I love karaoke and most of my friends don't do not want to go with me. So if you go <laughs> with people you don't know that well, are you the one that gets up on the stage and then people are just looking at you with their jaw dropping? Like yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's exactly what happens. <laughs> love that. I yeah, I've always had a secret fantasy to do that, but maybe in my next life. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> So what's, what's on your bucket list? What are some personal goals that you have? Oh, let's see bucket list. My husband and I actually, we started uh, like a combined bucket list. One thing I would like to do. So my sort of side obsessions 
outside the law and outside my music stuff are um, Italian food and wine, as my mom's family is Italian. And I studied abroad there. I speak the language okay. And it's just something I've done for, you know, just pure pleasure and enjoyment for years. And I would probably get into wine if I ever left the law. So I want to go to um, this festival called Vin Italia. It's like an annual huge, huge wine festival in the Venice area of Italy, I think. I think the region that involves Venice is where it is. So that's a that's a bucket list thing. Also, there is a um, there's a pesto making competition <laughs> in Genoa. Wow. <laughs> I guess you make pesto. Yeah, I do make my own and it's I've been trying to perfect the recipe, but no matter what I do, I can't can't get it to taste as good as it does in Italy. I don't know what I'm doing wrong, but I'm going to keep experimenting. Well, one thing about Europe in general is everything's just better. Every, the food is just fresher. Well, at least it seems like it is. It I think it is. It's just fresher. Yeah. It's, it's, everything's local. Yeah. It hasn't been sitting on a truck in a refrigerated truck for <laughs> seven days or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So that is so awesome. So you cook and you sing you're insanely smart. You are a lawyer. <laughs> What's wrong with you? <laughs> Plenty of, fra- of flaws, I promise. <laughs> okay. I think they're probably pretty minor from, from what I can see. So I'd like to end every interview with a series of questions, um, sort of like a Proust questionnaire, if you've ever seen one of those. Yeah. So what is your idea of perfect happiness? Oh, perfect happiness. I think it's going to involve something that is on my bucket list, which is to own property on the Amalfi Coast, because that is by far my favorite vacation destination. Going to Italy is just, it is one place where I go and I completely relax. No matter what's going on in my life at the time, it is the one place I can go. And I just, I just am able to feel relaxed. I don't feel stressed. I sit back and I just take everything in and enjoy, you know, all the senses. And so I really want to own a place there. Well, you should start working on that now. Yeah. It's, it's sort of in progress. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah. I have not been to the Amalfi coast, but I have heard that it's absolutely one of the places you need to see you do it's it's stunning I it's hard to it's hard to plan future trips to Italy because I always want to go there and I always want to go to Tuscany because that's where I studied abroad and I still have some friends there and of course the wine and everything food in Tuscany is amazing and um so I know I need to branch out but (laughs) whenever I think about a European trip I'm like okay Tuscany and the Amalfi Coast. And then what can, what else can I fit in in the time that I'm going to take off? I mean, if it makes you really happy and that's just your, you know, your Zen place, then yeah. you don't need to branch out. Yeah. What is the one quality that you most admire in a friend? The one quality I most admire in a friend of mine is her ability to, I think, connect with people very quickly she's somebody who you meet and you just, 
I don't know, you instantly just want to be around her more. You think, gosh, why didn't I meet her years ago? And she just exudes this pure happiness and openness. And it's, it's incredible. I wish, you know, I was more like her. I, I don't think people feel that with me the way that you do when you meet this woman. I, it's hard to describe, but I think you, a lot of people probably just feel a very quick, instant connection to her. Who is someone, not just one person, but who is someone that you have most admired in your life? They can be alive or not. I think I I'm, have a lot of admiration for my great-grandfather, who I didn't ever get to meet, but he left Italy when he was 16 years old. He left his parents. He left his younger siblings. He had a couple siblings already here in America, but he got on a boat and he didn't speak English and he came here and he made a really great life for himself. And I'm sure it wasn't easy and he never got to see his parents again. And to have that kind of courage and determination at 16 years old is just something I have such great admiration for. Okay. So let's say that um, a huge bag of money falls out of the sky and you don't have to work anymore. You don't have to worry about money. Yeah. What are you going to do? Um, buying my property in Italy, first of all, I'm going to probably have the spot on the Amalfi Coast. And then I'm probably buying a vineyard in Tuscany and learning about wine and working with that probably for the rest of my life. And have you talked to your husband? Is he okay with oh, all this? Oh, he's fully on board. Fully on board. Okay. Well, just remember your friends. Yes, of course. Now, I expect an, an invitation. Yeah. <laughs> so if you could have one superpower, what would it be? Oh, I think I would be able to fly. Why? Well, because I just want to go to Italy whenever I feel like it. <laughs> I think for me, it's just time travel. Time travel, yeah. Yeah. Flying would be pretty cool, though, too. All right. I, I could do this all day. So. I know. We do. <laughs> well, Great questions. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing so many of your personal experiences and even the silly questions at the end. <laughs> and for people that are interested in learning more about you and contacting you about your services, especially because it's not limited to just Ohio, yeah. how can they reach out to you? Uh, they can absolutely just email me directly, kmayer at graydon.law. Um, or, you know, you'll be able to find me on the firm's website. So just look for Graydon in Cincinnati and type in my name and you'll, you'll find all my contact info. So shoot me an email or give me a call. I'd love to, love to help out. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing. I really enjoyed our conversation and I would love to have you back another time, especially to hear you sing. Yeah, we'll do a song in the future. Thank you so much. It was great talking to you, Christina. Thank you for listening to Wake Up Call, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to know more about me, you can find out more on my website, christinaprevitt.com. And be sure to sign up for my newsletter where I talk about everything that I'm reading, learning, listening to, doing, basically everything that I'm obsessed with right now. Follow me on social media. Look up Wake Up Call, the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you'd like to be a guest on Wake Up Call or there's someone you'd like to hear on my podcast, 
please email me at wakeupcallthepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you and see you next time.